This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Hello, I'm Carmen Pate, your host for today's podcast. For all who believe in Jesus, for forgiveness of sins and eternity with Him, we have been given a beautiful relationship into the family of God. But no relationship is quite like that between the Father and the Son. As we continue our series on the uniqueness of Christ, we are going to closely examine that heavenly relationship Mark Ray will help us to make life application for our personal walk with Christ and our relationship with others. Mark is Vice President of Community Development here at Grace and the Executive Director of the Grace Center for Spiritual Development. Mark holds a Master of Biblical Studies from Dallas Theological Seminary and a Master of Divinity from Grace School of Theology. He has served churches as an associate pastor and as a lead pastor and has served as COO of a major evangelistic ministry. Let's listen now as Mark shares Christ's unique relationship. Michael Franzese and Cammie Franzese, who came in on Tuesday, we got a chance to preview that movie that's now going out nationwide starting in another week. I don't know if you all know this, but Midland was the first place that that movie was seen in the country. We were the first place that that movie was shown, and almost 2,000 people came out that night to see the movie. And Midland Bible Church opened the door for that. Way to go. Tremendous. Now, there were some interesting things that happened, but I have to take you back to about six years ago when I first met Michael. And for those of you that don't know the story, Michael Franzese is an ex-mobster. He was number 18 on the FBI's most wanted list of mobsters back in the 80s. He's the only man to ever have walked away from the mob and lived to tell about it. And he was here with us. About six years ago when I first met him and I brought him to Austin to speak to a group of about 300 men, my wife had picked up my phone because there was a text and it was dinging over and over again and it was driving her nuts. So she picked up my phone and she said the most surreal thing is to look at my phone and to have an email from an ex-mobster who said, Mark, brother, great to be with you. I love you and I'm praying for you. Now, how surreal is that for a guy who'd been wanted by the police in prison for over five years, done some of the worst things that you can possibly imagine, and he's texting me, calling me brother, and saying he's loving, he loves me and he's praying for me. She just said it was one of the most surreal experiences she'd ever had. Well, I got one of those surreal experiences when I watched the movie because I've heard Michael's testimony over and over and over again. I've heard it multitude of times, but to see it visually on the screen was something very different. And what struck me that night was listening to him talk about idolizing his father. Now, his father was Sonny Franzese, who was back in the 60s. He was the mob enforcer responsible for between 40 and 60 deaths by his own hand. He's been in prison for over 50 years. He's 97 years old, still incarcerated. He is the oldest living mobster, and he is the oldest living inmate. 
And Michael said, I idolized this guy. Now, this was a bad guy. I'm just here to tell you, he was a bad guy. And Michael idolized him and eventually went into the family and started to follow in his father's footsteps. And what struck me was listening to Michael talk about his father at the beginning of the movie and listening to him talk about his heavenly father at the end of the movie and seeing the unbelievable comparison between this guy who lifted up his father, his earthly father, and all the bad things he did, and yet he loved him and idolized him anyway. And when Michael walked away from the mob, his father put a contract out on him and betrayed him horribly. And yet today he talks about his heavenly father and what there is in life, the incredible life he has walking with God today. And the juxtaposition of those two things side by side was just this incredible surreal experience for me because I know Michael now. It's the only way I've known him. But I've seen him slide back into his old ways at times. He can get back into, you know, New York mobster kind of, hey, I'm, forget about it, you know? <laughs> In fact, I used to ask him one time, I said, when somebody asks you, how you doing? You know how he answers it? I'm doing. So there's your answer. Somebody says, how you doing? You just say, I'm doing. But when I watch him slide back into that mode, there is, this, there is this mobster that comes out. And I told him after, after a couple of times that I saw him actually slide into that, that I'm really glad I know him now and I didn't know him then. Because he's one scary dude back then. But now, seeing what the Holy Spirit has done in transforming him, seeing what life has done what God has done in restoring this man's life is an amazing story. The uniqueness of his father and the relationship he had with his earthly father, but the relationship he has with his heavenly father. It opens up the door for what we want to talk about today. We're continuing in this look at the distinctives of Jesus. What makes Christ unique? And last week we talked about Jesus' unique reality. The fact that no other person can ever claim that they lived prior to existence of time, prior to the existence of creation, that he existed uniquely in time, and that he's been exalted for all time, back before, before anything created, and he will be exalted in eternity. And that makes Jesus very, very distinct, very unique. But today, we're going to look at Jesus' unique relationship with his Father, and we're going to look very specifically at that unique relationship in public where the father calls Jesus son and Jesus calls the father his father, my father. We're going to look at it not only in public, but we're going to look at it very specifically in practice. How did, how did it come out in Jesus' life where he claims equality with God and he backs it up? And finally, we're going to look at Jesus in power, that unique relationship in power where he claims the power and the authority of God here on earth. A set of distinctives that set Christ apart from anybody else that's walked the face of the earth. Jesus' unique relationship. We start with his unique relationship in public. And this is a really cool thing because there are two times recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. One is at the baptism and one's at the, at the transfiguration where the voice of God comes out of heaven and proclaims Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. 
Now, at the baptism, this occurs, Jesus has been on the earth for 30 years. 30 years. In obscurity, in a carpentry shop, working with his father. We don't know for how long, but he was 30 years old around that time when this happens. And so, at the baptism, seen in Matthew 3 and Mark 1 and Luke 3, we get this statement when he comes before John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And you remember, the Holy Spirit comes, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove and lands on his shoulder, and a voice from heaven cries out, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Mark, it is, this is my beloved son, you, in you I am pleased. And in Luke, it is, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Now, there's a couple of distinctives to make sure you understand about this. First of all, when God is speaking at the baptism, he's speaking directly to Jesus. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, it's a public proclamation of Jesus in the Jordan River to be baptized. But this is God speaking directly to Jesus. And when you look at all three statements, it is Jesus that sees the dove descending. So what we get is we get the Father who sends the Spirit to the Son for the benefit of the Son. This is a great statement where God puts his stamp of approval on Jesus before anything ever happens. You're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, which brings about a second statement, and that is, God says, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, what has Jesus done that God would be well pleased in? Well, I want to read to you from what Ken Geyer, who we had here this weekend, says in one of his Moments with the Savior's book. He says this, a voice from heaven thundered the answer, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. But what did the son accomplish to merit such approval? He hasn't taught in a synagogue or triumphed over Satan. He hasn't preached a sermon or cast out a demon. He hasn't healed a sick person or made a single disciple. He hasn't done anything special, let alone spectacular. So why was the father so pleased? Well, maybe. It was the same pleasure that Joseph had when he saw the young Jesus standing next to him in the woodshop, miming every single move he made as he worked, his, worked the wood with his hands. Though the boy had made nothing on his own, he was eager to learn and so willing to work. He was so attentive to the father's voice and so submissive to his instructions. He went about his apprenticeship with such joy, humming his way through the day, for he delighted in working with his father. Even if he was given the lowliest of work to do, regardless of whether it was stooping to pick up scraps of wood or sweeping the sawdust off the floor, Jesus loved working with his father. His baptism then marked his passage into a brand new apprenticeship, and that would be the apprenticeship of suffering. It would be the hardest work he would ever do and the lowliest. But he'd be working with his father, listening to his every word, following his every instruction, and he would be working with delight. And he concludes this statement with this. What father would not be pleased with a son like that? Why could the father say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased when nothing yet had happened? Because what had actually happened was Jesus for 30 years had been obedient in, his, in obscurity. He'd learned the trade. He'd learned the apprenticeship. He'd gotten the splinters in his fingers. He'd swept the sawdust up. He'd learned patience. He'd learned all the things that were necessary to begin that ministry, but he'd done it in obedience to the Father. 
And the father was well pleased. And so the directive at the baptism is to Jesus himself. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Imagine what Jesus felt. Here he's been in obscurity for 30 years and he comes to the baptism and God says, it's you. You're my beloved son in whom I'm well. Jesus must have just beamed with pride, especially when the Holy Spirit landed on him. What an incredible statement in public from God the Father. But we also get the fact that he made this public proclamation in the transfiguration at the end when Jesus is now in all of his glory. Remember at the baptism, he's in all of his lowliness. Nothing's happened yet. He's just started. He gets baptized by John the Baptist. And now at the transfiguration, when he begins the last chapter of his ministry, he, he, he comes in all of his glory. And here again, recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get what God says here, which is, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Now there's two distinctives here as well. The first is that this now is directed to the disciples. God isn't making this directive to Jesus. This is Jesus in all of his glory with Elijah and Moses on either side, not a bad company to keep. But here's Jesus in all of his glory transfigured and God says to the disciples, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Imagine being one of those disciples there. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then God gives a directive to them and he says this, listen to him. And the reason he says listen to him is this, because right after that, Jesus comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration and he says this to the disciples. He says, here's what's going to happen to the son of man. He's going to be captured, betrayed, beaten, crucified, die, and on the third day rise again. And the reason God said listen to him is because they needed to hear he will rise again on the third day. What the disciples heard was he's going to be captured, beaten, crucified, and die. And that's really obvious from their reactions. They never heard he will rise again on the third day. And God says this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased because he has been obedient in the small things 30 years coming into this ministry, and now he's going to be, be obedient in a very large thing, the Savior of the world. So what does the voice of God sound like? What does the voice of God sound like? Scripture tells us it could be the thunder. You could hear his voice in the thunder. You can hear his voice in a whisper. What does the voice of God sound like? Well, I want to tell you a story about a captain who's out at sea, captaining his ship, and he looks off in the distance, and it's a stormy night. He looks off in his distance, and he sees this little light off in the distance. And he has his signalman come up, and the signalman stands on the bridge, and he says, send this message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. The signalman flashes the lights. Alter your course 10 degrees south. The reply comes back, you alter your course 10 degrees north. Captain's a little bit hot under the collar right now. So he says to the signalman, send this signal back. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. The signal comes back. You alter your course 10 degrees north. I am third class Seaman Jones. Well, now he's really ticked. 
He says, I'm going to send a message that will put the fear of God in him. You send this. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I'm a battleship. The message comes back. You alter your course 10 degrees north. I'm a lighthouse. What does the voice of God sound like? Could it be a flashing light in the distance? Could it be thunder? Could it be the quiet whisper? Could it jump off the pages of the text? Could it be in the word of a friend? Could it be in the cry of a baby? What does the voice of God sound like? It could be all of those, but make no mistake, the voice of God will always point us to the light will always point us to the light. The light of the world, Jesus Christ, will always point us to his beloved, the one in whom he's well pleased. That's what the voice of God says to us. I'm going to direct you to alter your course to the light, to my son. So there's this really unique public proclamation of God about the son that he never makes about anybody else. And he never makes it public about anybody else but Jesus. But Jesus also makes a public proclamation about his father. He calls him my father. In Matthew 7, Matthew 10, 11, 12, 15, 16, 18, 20, 25, 26, Luke 2, 10, 22, 24, John 2, 5, 6, 10, 14, 15, 20, and Revelation 2 and 3. Jesus, time and time and time and time and time again, uses the personal pronoun, my, in describing the Father. This is my Father. Listen to him very carefully in Matthew 16. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now there's an interesting statement to be made here, and that is first that it's the Father who points Simon, Peter, to Jesus. This is the one. It comes from the Father. The Father gives credit to the Son, but the Son gives credit to the Father. It's my Father who revealed this to you. There's an incredible sense of humility there because if it had been me, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, I would have said, way to go, Peter. You got it. Way to go. It's me. And the focus would have been on me. What does Jesus do? Jesus goes, my Father revealed it to you. There's this incredible statement of humility, and I wonder where he learned that from. Maybe 30 years working under Joseph. Maybe he learned that from his heavenly father himself. So you get this statement in this passage where the identity of Jesus is revealed by the father, but Jesus gives all the credit to his heavenly father. And again, he uses that personal pronoun, this is my Father, who has revealed this to you? Listen to him in John 10. Boy, this one's significant. Jesus answered and said, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. 
As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. You could stop that right there and say, man, that's really great. But Jesus goes on and he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Listen to what he's saying. This is really significant. Jesus says, man, if you're in me, you're safe. But he says, the reason you're really safe is because my Father has given you to me. My works testify to that. My Father has given you to me. And by the way, my Father is greater than all. This is that pride that Jesus takes in his heavenly Father. My Father's greater than all. There's no one out there like Dad. He says, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That isn't... Friends, how many of you are safely in the Father's hand? You know Jesus? You're safely in the Father's hand? Guess what? You're not going anywhere because no one, including yourself, can take you out of the Father's hand. Amen? Amen. We are safe in the Father's hand. Why? Because Jesus tells me I'm safe in the Father's hand, and he's greater than anybody. What an incredible sense of comfort that by trusting in Jesus Christ, I'm safely ensconced in the Father's hand. What a great place to be. And then he makes this incredible statement. I and my Father are one. No wonder he can say, when you know me, you're assured there's comfort. There's safety in me because I and my Father are are the same. We are one. I've told you stories about my dad, Budsy. That's what my, my kids called him, Budsy, and when they were young, they couldn't pronounce his name, so they called him Buppy. It's a great thing, and my dad loved every minute of it. But my dad was a very, very successful salesman. He ran a company for 25 years that he started from scratch. And I came up through college, got a graphics degree, and decided to go to work for him, and I was going to be a graphic designer for him, but decided I wanted to move into sales. So I started in the sales force in his company. And I was a green 23-year-old working in sales in his company, and my dad had, if you were a new sales guy, you had to spend time with every salesman in the company. So I spent time with every salesman in the company. And then he had me spend time with him. And spending time with my dad... As a salesman, it was an incredible thing because my dad was known in the city of Houston as a very, very good salesman. But he was a very good salesman because what my dad did was he developed intimate relationships with his customers. He got to know them as friends. He got to know them as as people, not as an order. And so when I would go with him on accounts, when I'd go with him on calls, it was great to have him. He could walk in a door and people, but how you doing? Great to see you. These were customers, by the way that he had developed friendships with, he developed relationships with. And what my dad did with me was he started to give me certain customers. He gave me certain of his accounts, some of the smaller ones, and he went to them behind, didn't tell me about this, but he went to them and he told them, now I'm going to turn this customer over to you. I'm going to turn you over to my son. He's going to take care of you. Now, don't worry, I'm going to be there. You can always call me. I'm always there, but I want you to work with him. And it astounded me. I thought sales was the easiest thing in the world because I'd walk into a customer's office and I'd say, here, take my order. I never had to ask for an order. But that was because my dad was so great in his relationship that they trusted him. 
And I used to hate it as a young kid when I'd walk into a, to a customer's door. You remind me so much of your dad. You look just like him. You, you, you talk like him. You act like him. I hated that until I began to understand what an incredible compliment it was. Because what they were aligning me to, without even knowing me, was because I was my father's son, I had integrity. I had credibility. I could sell. I would become a friend because of the relationships my dad built. He was my father. And by being my father, he paved the way for an open door for me to be successful in business. Because there was a reputation about my father. There was an integrity about my father. My father was good. And his customers knew it. Well, Jesus stands up and he says, this is my father. And you just get this sense of what an incredible thing it was for Jesus, the God-man on the face of the earth, to say, that is my Father. I and the Father, I and my Father are one. Jesus wanted nothing else but to identify with the Father. I and the Father. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the... I am my father's representative here. When you've seen me, you've seen the father. And by the way, I'm him. It's an amazing statement that he makes. Jesus knows the father, and he knows the father is good. And he makes a public proclamation. This is my father. No one else gets to do that. An incredible public distinction of Jesus. The father calls him son. He calls the father my father. Well, it also happens in practice. The incredible thing about what Jesus does in practice is he actually goes out there and he claims equality with God. He actually says, I'm equal to him. I'm him. I and the father are one. We just read that. But he takes it to this, to this level because he states this is who I am. He states it by what he says. And make no mistake, Jesus claims equality with the Father. He claims to be God over and over again, equality with the Father. Listen to him here, John 5, verses 16 through 18. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. He said, my Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. I've been in ministry a long time, and I've heard a lot of people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. (laughs) Time and time again he did. And even the most significant time, I think, the most significant time that he claimed to be God is right when he was on trial for his life. Now, I'm going to read to you an Old Testament passage out of Daniel. This is a prophetic statement that Daniel makes prophesying about about the Messiah coming. Listen to what he says, and I want to accentuate a statement because you're going to hear Jesus repeat it. This is Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. It's a great, great passage. He says, I was watching in in the night visions, and behold, 
one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. This is Daniel talking about the one who would ultimately fulfill the Davidic covenant, a forever king on a forever throne. He's talking about the Messiah who is to come. Now, you fast forward to Jesus. He's had three years of ministry. He's now been taken in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been brought before actually six different trials in which he's been pronounced innocent. Make sure you understand that. Any lawyers in here? If you're pronounced innocent in a trial, you get to walk out, don't you? Six times Jesus is pronounced innocent, and each time he's taken back to another trial. And in this particular one, listen to how he responds. Jesus kept silent. This is Matthew 26. Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. It's really kind of a funny statement, isn't it? It's almost as if he should say, I put you under oath by you. I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now listen to Jesus' words and think back to Daniel 7. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Did he ever claim to be God? Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a direct quote from Daniel 7. A thing that every Pharisee and every Sadducee knew was a prophetic statement about God. Now, Jesus had been silent. All of the testimony that had been coming up against him had basically claimed him to be innocent over and over again. They couldn't get their testimony straight. And now Jesus, by his own testimony, condemns himself to death. You realize if Jesus hadn't said anything right here, there's no case against him. He's off. He's done. He goes back. He's finished. But by Jesus' own words, quoting Daniel 7, relating it to him, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the scribes right there, I am God. The next statement in that passage says, they shout, he blasphemed, and they tear their robes. Isn't it an amazing thing that they tear their robes at what was the truth? They're claiming a blasphemous statement by the one who is telling them the truth. It still astounds me that if he had kept silent, none of it would have happened. But here's the amazing thing. Because he didn't keep silent, you and I are sitting here having the prospect, the assurance of eternal life and of rich, abundant life here. Because Jesus didn't keep silent because he claimed to be God by what he said. Pretty cool thing, isn't it? He did that for me. Went straight to the cross on his own testimony because of me and his testimony that he is God. So not only did he say it, but he's the only one who ever backed up his claim of being God. He backed it up when he cleansed the temple my father's house. He backed it up when he executed judgment and he talked specifically, the, the, the woman caught in adultery, he executed the judgment there, go and sin no more. He claimed that 
He backed it up when he had power over demons, when he had power over the, the wind and the waves. He, he backed up his claim for being God, but the most significant time that he backed up his claim is this. And this comes out of Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 through 6. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. <laughs> and at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. Why? He claims to be God. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think such evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. If you read the next statement there, they pick up stones to stone him. Why? Because he claimed to be God. Now, here's the fascinating thing about him backing it up. He says, which is it easier to do, to say forgive sins? Well, that's the easier to do. Why? Prove it. Prove that his sins are forgiven. Show it visibly. How do I know his sins are forgiven? You can't. So it's a whole lot easier to say your sins are forgiven, or is it easier to say Pick up your pallet and go home, because that proves that you've been healed. And Jesus says, just so you know that I have the power to do the invisible, forgive sins, I'm going to tell him to pick up his bed and go home. And he does. When that's presented in front of them, Jesus backing up his claim to be God, they want to stone him. Jesus showed himself over and over again to be who he said he was. He not only did it in the acts that he did, those healings and the power over the wind and the waves, but he also did it in how he treated people, how he loved on them. He loved on them. He showed them forgiveness. He showed them grace. He showed them mercy. He showed them blessing. He showed them peace. He showed them the incredible statement about how you treat people. James Kennedy, the pastor, said one day he was in a man's house and he was sharing with the man about Jesus Christ. And he looked at him and he said, who do you think Jesus is? And the man said, oh, he's a wonderful man. In fact, the greatest man who ever lived, the most loving and gracious person who ever walked the face of the earth. Kennedy said to him, let me tell you something that I think will startle you. According to the scriptures and the historic Christian faith, Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter of Galilee, was and is the eternal creator of the universe, the omnipotent, the omniscient, and the almighty God. He said, I watched this man as the tears filled his eyes. And a man of 60 years old responded and he said, I've been in church all my life and I've never heard that before. And then he said this, but I've always thought that that's the way it ought to be that God ought to be like Jesus. How about that one, folks? He is. God is good. Let's say that one together. God is good. Amen. And Jesus, the reflection of that because of what he said and how he backed it up, showed himself to be the good God that he is. So not only in public did he do it, but he did it in his practice. And he backed up the fact that he claimed to be God and he acted like it. He did what God would do.
But there's a final statement he makes here, and that's the statement he makes in power. Because you see, God not only just claimed to be God, but he claimed to have the power and the authority of God. And this is stated all throughout the scriptures, but the most telling one of these comes at the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, in the Great Commission. I want to read the Great Commission to you, but I want you to pay special attention to the first statement Jesus makes here. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and he came and he spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Now there's some incredible statements in there, but I want you to back out the incredible statements. The first one is back out, amen, which is so be it. Back out, I'm with you to the ends of the age. That's a pretty incredible statement. Back out, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded. Back out, baptizing them. Back back out, making disciples. And focus on the one statement that Jesus makes here, which is the last thing he says when he's on the earth. All authority has been given to me where? In heaven and? Does that mean there's any place that his authority escapes? Does that mean there's any place that his authority escapes? All authority has been given. Who's it been given to him by? By his father. All authority has been given to him in heaven and earth. Now, I want to show you what this means. Because by Jesus having all the authority in heaven and on the earth, here's what Jesus had the opportunity to do. Jesus could have claimed the authority in heaven and on earth, to say, no, I'm not coming to earth. He had the authority to do that. He had the authority to say, I'm not going to earth. But he didn't. He had the authority to say, I'm not going to be born as a baby in a stinky stable. To a 14-year-old virgin, I'm not going to do that. Get that stuff all over me, be around those smelly ants. I'm not going to, I'm the king of kings and the lord of lords. I'm not doing that. But he didn't. He had the authority to say, I'm not going to live 30 years in obscurity getting splinters in my fingers working with wood. I'm not going to do that. But he didn't. He had the authority to say, no, I'm not just going to spend three years on the earth. I'm going to spend eternity on there. I'm going to spend as much time as I want. Don't just give me this three years of ministry. He could have said that, but he didn't. He could have said in the Garden of Gethsemane, you will take this cup away from me because I'm not doing this. But he didn't. He had the authority and the power not to go to the cross, which means he is the only man Because he had the authority and the power to not die, he's the only man to ever fully sacrifice himself. He had the power and the authority to not go to the cross. But he went. He had the power and the authority when they said, come down from the cross, to do it. But he stayed there. And the most amazing thing is, he had the power and the authority, friends, to say no to me. He had the power and the authority to say no to you. But he didn't. He came to earth. 
He was born in a stable. He spent 30 years in obscurity. He spent three years ministering. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane and said, not my will, but yours. He went to the cross. He died and rose again with all the power and authority from the God of the universe. And friends, he did it for you and for me. Nobody else can make that claim. You see, he did it because he's God. And he did it because he's good. Amen? You've been listening to Mark Ray. Oh, how important it is for us to be reminded that God calls Jesus Son, that Jesus claims equality with God, and he claims the power and authority of God because he is God and he is good. Our prayer is that the unique relationship of Jesus with the Father has strengthened your faith in who Christ is. As you pursue to know him more, let us help you. We are making available a study guide for the entire series on the uniqueness of Christ. You can get it free by simply downloading it at gsot.edu forward slash center. That's gsot.edu forward slash center. Be sure to share this podcast with and the study guide with friends. Thank you for joining us today. And remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and can never be lost. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash savinggrace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership.